Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everyone. As you all know, the January 6th committee was supposed to have its next hearing this week. Unfortunately, due to Hurricane Ian, that was postponed. Therefore, I want you to have a listen to an encore presentation of my conversation with Barton Gelman regarding his article from The Atlantic of earlier this year. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you listen to it. And I'll see you next week. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today I'm joined by legendary Democratic strategist, senior advisor to The Lincoln Project, and host of That Trippy Show, Joe Trippy. Joe, Happy New Year and welcome back. Happy New Year, Reed. Great to be with you. And our special guest this week for the upcoming anniversary of January 6th is Barton Gelman, author and staff writer for The Atlantic, where he recently penned the article, Trump's Next Coup Has Already Begun. January 6th was practiced. Donald Trump's GOP is much better positioned to subvert the next election. Prior to his time at The Atlantic, Bart spent 21 years at The Washington Post, where he covered legal, diplomatic, military, and Middle East issues. He graduated with highest honors from Princeton University and earned a master's degree in politics at University College Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. His most recent book is Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State, and he comes to us today from his home in New York City. Bart, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So, Bart, as the one-year anniversary of January 6th approaches this week, Joe and I want to have a deep-dive discussion on your recent article in The Atlantic, which I think I tweeted was a gut punch, even as someone who spends nothing but all day, every day going through this stuff. And so, you know, you look into January 6th, what led up to it, its aftermath, and examine the twisting of state election laws by Republicans in some states. So let's get into it. I want to start with a quote here, and it's from Richard L. Hassan a professor of law and political science at UC Irvine, and you talked to him in late October, he said, quote, the democratic emergency is already here. Only a year ago, he was cautioning me against hyperbole. Now he speaks matter of factly about the death of our body politic. Quote, we face a serious risk that American democracy as we know it will come to an end in 2024, but urgent action is not happening. So Bart, what's the holdup in the urgency? What do we have to do to have the scales fall from our eyes? Well, there are several explanations, I think, and it depends on which actors you're talking about. But I think on the side of the small d Democrats, there is simply a disbelief that this could really be happening to us. There's a disbelief that in America, we could lose our democratic bearings. We could fall victim to an authoritarian coup or something very much like it. There's a sense that we're the world's oldest and most stable democracy. And it's just not true anymore that we're as stable as we'd like to believe. You talk about the forces of the small d democracy, and you even say that who or what will safeguard our constitutional order is not apparent today. It's not even apparent who will try. So in your mind, who should be the people that should be trying out to be out there safeguarding democracy? I mean, we take some pride in trying to be people that do that. But from your perspective, who else should be out there? Well. 
Part of the problem with asking me that is I'm not accustomed to answering a question like that. I mean, I'm more like the Paul Revere guy who's over the horizon and on the way. And thank God for America's sake that I'm not in charge of coming up with solutions. But surely you would expect that the one remaining political party we have that believes in the concept of peaceful transfer of power would be safeguarding it. You would expect more from civil society than we're seeing. You would expect more from the president. The president said in a speech in July that didn't get as much notice as maybe it ought to have, that we were facing the greatest test of our democracy since the Civil War. And if the president of the United States believes that, those are big words, you would expect commensurate action. And we haven't seen that. He's in a bad spot. He's got at least two senators who are not yet, anyway, willing to adjust the filibuster. So he can't pass Democratic voting legislation. But he is not making this his top priority, the way he made the infrastructure bill and the social spending bills. Joe, you're a lifelong Democrat. From your perspective, what's the mental block on the big D Democratic side of the aisle? I think it's a lot like Hassan said, his evolution from don't use hyperbole, now all of a sudden, hey, this is urgent and no one's responding. I think Democrats are at large, particularly in Washington, I think suffer from that same sort of delusion that we're all being alarmist, that there's other things that are important. And because we're supposedly the most stable democracy in the world, that's the one they've lived in. I just don't get the sense that they're going to wake up in time. It's obvious to me, obvious to you, obvious to Bart. We can't wait for Garland or the Senate to do the filibuster. It's got to be a pro-democracy coalition that comes from the ground up in a way that these senators get it. Bart, I would ask you is that if you're a United States member of Congress or a United States senator, and just a year ago, like people were chasing you out of your offices, you know, at the expense of potentially your life. <laughs> like if that didn't wake them up, is anything going to? Right. Well, part of the problem is if you go to public opinion, which all members of Congress and the Senate are deeply sensitive to, the paradox is that if you ask Democrats and Republicans whether there is right now an existential threat to our democracy, Republicans will say yes. And it's their belief in that threat, their belief that an election was stolen, that itself represents the threat to our democracy. It's the false belief that the institutions of elections failed last time and that the election was stolen that justifies in the minds of Republican operatives or is seized upon cynically by many of them to do the things that will steal the next election. Democrats are not especially concerned about the future of our democracy right now. And so exactly the wrong people are exercised about this at the moment. So, I mean, Bart, as you sit in New York as a member of the media, it seems to me that what I will call the Fox News, the right wing sort of media slash rage machine drives the agenda, whether or not anybody wants to believe that. But it's the things that they bring up, whether or not it's critical race theory, whether or not it's rolling back abortion rights, whether or not it's the big lie and you know stop the steal. We have these conversations on their turf. And not a lot of people seem to push back on it. Yeah, they are exceedingly good at finding wedge issues, finding social division lines, and exploiting them and hammering away at one message over and over and over again until it sticks. 
Well, they've been building this outrage machine, in my view, for like 40 years with billions of dollars, and nothing's been built against it. There's been no pro-democracy or anti-disinfo kind of machine out there that was built. In a lot of ways, the mainstream media tries to prove against the attacks of the outrage machine that they're not the liberal lamestream media. And so there's no one ever really defending democracy in the overall press corps. They're hard to find. I mean, that's why I think the Atlantic's been doing what your piece is you know, laid out and why it's so important. But one of the things that I wanted to ask you is in your piece, you talked about this former firefighter, Patterson, I think it was, who defended some of his thinking by like citing people like Lieutenant General Thomas McInerney, who appeared on Fox and just was able to use this mesh of misinformation to come into this belief system, I think, that you were trying to get at. Can you explain that to me? How do you think that works? You know, just before I get to Patterson, I want to pick up on something you said earlier. I, I smiled when you talked about a disinformation machine and an anti-disinformation machine. And the trouble with mainstream media's understanding of its role in these different times is that it just thinks of itself as an info machine and not an anti-disinfo machine. And there's a distinction. And you're starting to see more and more understanding that you have to call lies lies, that you have to attack propaganda, that you have to recognize propaganda as the emergency threat that it is. But that's still a fairly slow change in coming because the disinformation machine is very busy and very cynical. Because, you know, if you were to give truth serum to uh, the great majority of Republican politicians or the leading voices of propaganda on the right, they know that Biden won the election. They have taken the COVID vaccine themselves. They know it's a lifesaver, but they're happy to say otherwise. And this guy, Patterson, the firefighter, is a big consumer of the whole right-wing information ecosystem. He has facts and figures, what he thinks are facts and figures. He has authorities people he thinks are authorities, that he can cite. And his views were invincible to evidence. I mean, I've read about this before, and I've always known that there are people that are very hard to persuade, but I've never tried it as an exercise myself over a period of days and weeks and many, many hours of conversation to test someone's beliefs with facts and see what would happen. And what happened is he just moved on to some other set of facts and figures, or he simply wouldn't believe that the facts were the facts. So he tells me that it's really Antifa that stormed the Capitol. And I said, well, how do you do that? And he says exactly what Joe said. He says, you should go find this General McInerney on Rumble. So I dutifully went and found McInerney on Rumble. And I call McInerney and ask him, and he's an 83, 84-year-old guy, 30 years out of the Air Force, and honestly losing a few steps over the years. And he tells me that he has a secret source who told him that somebody with a military-looking haircut said at the Capitol, we're pretending to be Antifa today. And he then reasons from this that U.S. Special Forces, because they looked like that to him or to his source, were actually leading the charge, pretending to be Antifa, that they stole Nancy Pelosi's laptop, that they had found evidence of her treason on it. This is all made up. 
he just flat out made it up. He doesn't even pretend to have a source on this. It's just his understanding of the world. And I explained all this to Patterson, the firefighter, and I said, the guy's son, McInerney's own son, believes that his father is losing it and wishes he wouldn't talk to the media anymore and wishes I wouldn't write about it. And Patterson just doesn't believe it. It's a sort of social psychology problem. Well, I want to spend a little time on Patterson because he's an archetype of this stuff. You know, this is what you write. He said, he, Patterson, is an Eagle Scout. He earned a college degree. He keeps current on the news, and yet he's wandered off from the empirical world, placing his faith in fantastic tales that lack any basis in fact or explicable logic. And I think belief is central to all this, right? I mean, the Bible's a 2,000-year-old book. People believe in it. Just because we have more technology and more information, you look at your phone, every bit of human knowledge ever created sits in that one device. But it doesn't matter because he has now crossed over from being an interested or concerned citizen to one who must believe in this. It's religious. It's like people who believe in aliens. You're not going to convince them otherwise. No, you're not. And he latches on to simple stories. And this right-wing extremist ecosystem is very good at creating simple stories because they're literally willing to make it up. So he heard somehow, he doesn't even know where he heard it, but he believes that there were 14 million more votes counted than there were people to cast them, because this was just one of those made-up things that somebody using sleight of hand on the figures to uh, count the wrong things. He said so that he assumes that those 14 million are all credited to Biden. It doesn't even occur to him that they could have been credited to Trump. And I told him exactly where the error was, why there was no such thing as 14 million surplus votes. I pointed him to the web pages where you could get the arithmetic. Didn't interest him. And what you're trying to do is create a cognitive dissonance that will break him from that. And I think that we've had a number of psychologists, psychiatrists. You know, we have one guy who was in a cult and studies cults. And the thing that it's found is that you can have these conversations with people and you can ultimately break it down, but it takes a very long time and you have to do it one at a time. It doesn't scale. The conversation doesn't scale. And so the infection spreads far faster than the cure could ever get involved, I guess. Right. I mean, he was willing to say, well, I don't really know about this 14 million, but there's so much proof from so many states that you couldn't possibly tell me that the fundamental idea that Biden cheated isn't true. I tried to ask him, well, do you imagine it's even possible that every time you come up with one of these stories, every time you give me a proof, what if I looked into it and it's just like the 14 million, it's not real? It just didn't imagine that could be possible. It would have had to be even more hours, even more weeks to imagine getting in there. It's disturbing. I think the more disturbing thing in your piece and we're seeing in a lot of polling now is the the number of these people that, if necessary, they'll use violence to write this lie. And, you know, the numbers may still be small percentage-wise of people who are willing to resort to that, but it's like millions of Americans. That's a good segue because, Bart, you did an interview with a guy named Robert Pape, a professor out of Chicago, and he and his group did a bunch of research on this in particular. And before we even get to the research, his main comparison to Donald Trump was Slobodan Milosevic of Yugoslavia. And I want to get to the numbers here in a second. But he said, just like Milosevic, Trump had skillfully deployed three classic themes of mobilization to violence. The survival of a way of life is at stake. The fate of a nation is being determined now. Only genuine, brave patriots can save the country. 
I mean, that sounds almost like what Donald Trump said on the ellipse a year ago. He said in as many words, all three of those things, and they are classics and they are the makings of what we haven't seen in a hundred years in this country, which is not only political violence, but a mass movement that is tolerant of and even valorizing of political violence. In that sense, January 6th is the beginning of something and not the end of something. I want to talk to Joe's point, though, Bart, about this, because Pape's group did a bunch of research starting in March of last year of 2021, and it said that he asked this question, the researchers first looked to identify people who said, quote, they don't trust election results and were prepared to join a protest, quote, even if I thought the protest might turn violent. That survey found that 4% of Americans agreed with both statements, a relatively small fraction that nonetheless corresponds to 10 million American adults. Three months later, 8% agreed that Biden was illegitimate and violence was justified to restore Trump to the White House. That corresponds to 21 million Americans. And then you reference the Public Religion Research Institute survey in November that found 12% believe that the election had been stolen from Trump and that true American patriots may resort to violence in order to save the country. So it's not just that the numbers are growing, Bart. It's that they frickin' doubled in six months. Yeah, and they doubled when the pollsters asked sharper questions. Usually, if you're trying to elicit what would normally be an unpopular position from someone, you ask it in a gentle way. So maybe you ask, what would your neighbors say about this as a way of proxying what the person thinks? But here, the sharper you made the question, the angrier you made the question, the more you said, violence is actually justified. I'm ready to engage in violence. The more likely you were to get a yes, because people are so angry, they want to hear the extreme version of the question before they'll agree to it. So it's a lot of people. And it's not illogical. If you believe that an American election has actually been stolen, that the people voted for Trump and corrupt institutions nevertheless handed an imposter the presidency, why wouldn't you support violence? I mean, it follows, especially when you're talking about 1776 and the founders and the Declaration of Independence and all this patriot rhetoric. I mean, if you truly believe that the election was stolen, and they believe that falsely, then we got a big problem with a mass movement that is open to violence. Well, one thing you note, Bart, in the story is or a report out by the Department of Homeland Security that said that a lot of this was driven by fringe groups or lone wolves. But looking at Pape's research, it seems counterintuitive. This is actually a mass of people, maybe not particularly well organized, but certainly ready to stand back and stand by, as Trump said in his debate with Biden in 2020, should you know he raise the flag and call to arms. Right. They're not centrally organized, but they're waiting for signals. The analogy would be to dry kindling. And who's going to supply the spark? And Trump supplied the spark on January 6th. He summoned people to Washington, and he sent them toward the Capitol with insistence that they had to fight. These are people who are open to that message and who will know what to do next time Trump summons them. Well, and Joe, this is one thing that I've been concerned about. You know, in some of this research, it says that consistently around the world, they, insurgents, tend to be in their 20s and early 30s, unemployed, in a bad economic spot. But what Pape's research found among the January 6th insurgents, the median age was 41.8. 
I'm 45. So these are early, mid-40s white guys. A lot of them have jobs. Bart, as you noted in your report, they're professionals. A lot of them have college degrees. Most of them have some college. This is not the guys sitting in a diner in Iowa complaining that the world has gone crazy. These are people shopping at Whole Foods. Yeah, the typical profile and what the Department of Homeland Security was talking about when they talked about small, isolated groups and lone wolves, the typical profile of political violence around the world and in this country has been in the past young, 20s, maybe early 30s, male, unemployed, low education. And if you look through the 700 plus people who have been charged so far and are January 6th defendants, as you say, they're uh, early, mid 40s, they're white collar, they're business owners, they're professionals, they are employed, they are relatively well educated. They are nothing like the lone wolves that the Department of Homeland Security is used to thinking about when it thinks of right wing extremist violence. But doesn't that get back, Bart, to what you were saying, that if your president has told you that this election was stolen, the president of the United States is telling you this, and you believe, I mean, you voted for him, you know, twice. It doesn't matter where you are, if that's your president telling you this and you believe him, then why wouldn't you listen to his call to march up there? So that's why I think it's not Lone Wolf. It is a group that bought the lie told to them by the president of the United States, who continues to tell it and is preparing to do it again. And it's easy for them to buy it because we not only get our information from filter bubbles, we tend to live in bubbles as well. I mean, another political scientist, Liliana Mason, told me earlier today that in Virginia, 70% of Trump voters had never met a Hillary Clinton voter, and vice versa was also true. They literally never met one, so they couldn't possibly imagine the other side when everyone they knew was on their side politically. But Joe, let me ask you a political question, though, because you know I think from our perspective, the conventional wisdom is that if you're in an upper income bracket, if you're educated, if you're white, if you're suburban, that this stuff should be anathema. The sort of racial undertones, you know, the anti everything sort of belief and stuff. And, you know, a lot of this stuff and probably more research needs to be done and we should dive deeper into this says, you know, the guys that we're taking for granted as people who should be, quote unquote, on our side or at least repulsed by the Republican Party are, in fact, with Trump. I've often said, you know, as a thought experiment, if you turned everything upside down and Barack Obama in November of 2016, had said this election was stolen by Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton's been denied the presidency and done the big lie the other way. Thankfully, the Democratic Party never nominated such a person. Thankfully, President Obama didn't do that. But I am saying, had he done it and kept saying it, regardless of what the press was saying, regardless of issues, how many Americans would have heard the call to come to Washington and then when told go up there and change this result would have done it. So Patterson, as Bart said, here's a guy who's a firefighter, courageous, somebody that Bart would count on to save him. Obviously a lot of expertise and yet believes this stuff so much got sucked into it. I think part of it has to be because the person making that call was his president, somebody he believed in that intensely. I don't know. That's just my own something that I've thought a lot about. That's interesting. 
I think that if Obama had done that, it would have had a big impact, and there would have been lots of Democrats who believed it. But if you really want to complete the analogy, you would have to have a whole political party willing to conspire in that lie and to go along with it. Yeah, and I don't think the Democrat. That's what I was saying. I don't think one we wouldn't have nominated such a person. And I don't think there's any way the whole party would have gone along with it the way the Republicans have, which I think gets again back to this guy Patterson, who's got Trump lying to him, and then all these other people that he puts his faith in, all amplifying it and enabling it. How do we break him out of that? Let me go the other direction, which is he takes a left and he breaks out of it. He takes a right. You know, Bart. Let's say there's thirty million. Right. Let's say there's 30 million Americans that believe this. How many people like Patterson would actually pick up a weapon, aim it at a political opponent and pull the trigger? I don't know the answer to that. But if you believe that a tyrant has seized power and is ruling by force against the will of the people, and you think of what the founders did and you think of the Redcoats, people are willing to go pretty far. And I'm certainly not imputing any of this to one guy who I happen to interview. but there are people who could talk themselves into it, I think, and could be talked into it. We can't have another civil war. Geographically, it's cities in every state versus countryside in every state. There's no north and south. There's no, you know, even if you think you could lop off the east and west coasts against the middle, um, that's not the way we're actually divided politically. But I think there's one thing, too, on the violence front, which is we're talking a lot about violence on the right wing, but we should not assume that if the right wing begins to employ actual violence against actual Americans, that there won't be some response from radicalized people on the left. No, I think we should not assume that at all. The worst in us can be brought out, and everyone uses the other side's behavior to justify ghastly things on their own side. And I mean, I think, Joe, back to one thing about you said, you know, if Barack Obama had made this call, the Democratic Party wouldn't have done it. I mean, the truth is, is that Republicans, having grown up in the Republican Party and worked in it for many years, have always been far more hierarchical than Democrats. I mean, we didn't believe it would metastasize into the authoritarian movement it has become today. But I mean, even if you just, you know, Bart, you mentioned President Biden and his speech about these things, you know, when a Republican president gives a speech about something, the entire Republican organ acts as if these were words handed down by God. Right. Joe Biden gives a speech and the first person that attacks him is somebody on his own side. Right. It's just a different thing. Yeah. The Republican Party message discipline, everything is top down. And that's why they have such discipline and why, by the way, it's harder for Democrats to fight back because there's such a diversity of opinion and responses that, like Reed said, you're as likely to be called out on something you said in the State of the Union speech by a Democrat. That's not unheard of at all. The Republican Party, that doesn't happen. And so I think the outrage machine and this message discipline of just sticking to the drum beat and constantly on it, constantly stoking the fear, whatever's the new outrage, they're just really, really good at it. And Democrats will never be good at that, which is one of the reasons I joined the Lincoln Project. But that's a different podcast. So, Bart, you wrote that for a few short weeks, Republicans recoiled at the insurrection on January 6th and distanced themselves from Trump. That would not last. There is a roaring tide of revanchist anger among Trump supporters rising up against anyone who would thwart his will. Scarcely any elected Republican dares resist them, and many surf exultantly in their wake. I mean, there's a lot of talk, Bart, that, you know, there are Republicans that fear Trump. And I think somebody like a Greg Abbott probably 
fits into that, right? If he doesn't do what he needs to, he will. You know, a supporter of ours was talking to his member of Congress a few weeks ago, a Democratic guy, and said, you have to understand that there's a lot of guys in the Republican conference who'd be perfectly happy if we were Turkey. Mm. Wow. You know, it's not a fear thing. It's like they actually believe this stuff now. And I, I guess maybe that makes sense if you consider that 147 of them, you know, voted to overturn the election results. Yeah. They're willing to say things they don't believe. They're willing to talk themselves into believing what they shouldn't believe. And there is a streak in this country of support for authoritarian sensibility. Social psychologists say it's something like 25% of the population is temperamentally attracted to the authoritarian personality. And they're doing a good job of rounding those folks up and activating them in the party. But I do think that there are a lot of Republicans who are opportunistic about this. And there are a lot that are scared. There are a lot who, if they could secretly push a button and make Trump disappear, they think the world would be better, but they're afraid to stand up. Well, and we just saw that Congressman Peter Meyer from Michigan, who was staunchly, I don't want to say staunchly, but was opposed to the president, voted to impeach him, went on a show this week and said, it's Trump's party, so I guess we got to do what he wants to do. And he's being primaried, not surprisingly, and he's also in a now plus nine Biden district. So it's one of those things where he was probably going to lose his primary anyway, and he sure shit not, pardon my French, not going to win a primary or win a general election in a minus nine district for him where he started to say, well, Donald Trump's in charge. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. So it feels like you see a lot of these sort of psychological undoing happening on national television. Yeah, he's squeezed by this enormous, enormous gigantic vice that has taken away all his options. There's a fantastic piece in the same issue of The Atlantic as my article by Tim Alberta about Pete Mayer and the pressures he's under. And if you want to understand what it's like to be a Republican of conscience and dealing with fewer and fewer options, you should read that piece. So before we let you go, Bart, the last piece I want to talk about is how Republicans in the states are systematically changing the election laws to make not only it more difficult for people to vote, but to actually take over legislative control of the election outcomes that you speak to Georgia specifically, where they've set up a GOP dominated board that can determine you know, whether or not a voter is valid, whether or not a ballot is null and void. But you also note that the Justice Department is suing on more of the racial tinged aspects of these laws, but not on the ones that actually can allow a Republican legislative body to overturn the will of the voters. It's hard to know what would be the grounds for suing. This is the way that Republicans are giving themselves a superficially legal way to throw the next election. So it's one thing to decide who gets to vote. And that's bad enough if you're disqualifying people for no good reason. It's the politician choosing the electorate. But an even bigger and more fundamental threat to democracy is take control of who counts the vote and making that from a nonpartisan or a bipartisan function to a highly partisan one is the most dangerous thing at all. But if you have a state legislature going through superficially the correct stages of passing a law, it then says, we, the legislature, in effect, are going to be in charge of counting the votes. And by the way, we, the legislature, don't think that the vote was valid last time and we are prepared to participate in the big lie. And next time we're going to do the counting ourselves. How is that against the law? It's against democracy. It's authoritarian. It's deeply subversive of the basic expectations we have of how our election machinery is going to work. But can you sue them for it? 
so far, the Justice Department has not thought of a way. Well, the reason we're all sitting here is because there was a massive lack of imagination. So all I would ask the folks at Maine Justice to do is find some, you know, like quickly. It just seems to me we have to swamp them in these next upcoming elections. So it's obvious that they're doing this, but I'm not even sure that's enough. Bart, you have any thoughts about how we fight this? I mean, we're out there every day fighting, and I agree with what your piece said about who else will fight. It doesn't look like there's a whole bunch of urgency. Where do we go from here? How do we, how do we fight this? Well, I mean, the Republican election-fixing machinery is paying a lot of attention to local and hyper-local offices. At the precinct and the county level, supervisors of elections, election clerks, obscure little commissions that make the rules and take care of the counting on election day, and pro-democracy activists are going to have to put just as much attention into those local offices if they want to make sure everything is done on the up and up. You know, just one of the things you write at the end is, quote, he, Trump, is preparing in plain view to do it again, and his position is growing stronger. And I think one of the distinctions you make in this is that political power in 2022 in America is not necessarily derived from holding elective office. In fact, if you have a would-be army of tens of millions of people and committed partisans at the state and local level willing to do the thing that will advantage you most, you can sit in the bridal suite in Mar-a-Lago and have just as much, if not more, power than anybody else. Mm, that's food for thought. I think it makes clear to me even more so just how important it is to grow the pro-democracy coalition from the ground up and I really believe there will be millions of Americans who respond to that call. But what's paramount is to not wait, to not wait for the filibuster to get reformed, to not wait for Garland or the Southern District of New York. Start now building that coalition, going for these localized races for election boards, and really mobilizing and engaging with each other to be the ones that turn this back. I, that's why I said I joined the Lincoln Project. It's why I think it's important for Democrats, Republicans, former Republicans, anybody out there who's pro-democracy and understands this threat to start building it with us. I think we can all do that. And I think from all my years of being out there, I really believe that the majority of Americans will step up and fight this and win. And that's one thing I should say, too, is we should sometimes flip these numbers around. 20 or 30 million people who are, quote unquote, committed insurrectionists or whatever is a scary number. That also means that there's like 300 million Americans who aren't, right? Like 90% of the country who doesn't believe that this stuff is okay. You Maybe that's too much, but you understand my point, which is I truly do believe there are more of us than there are of them. Right. That's actually part of the point, too. If the country perceives it that way, there's a lot more votes beyond 50% to turn this back. But the way to get them to get that is for all of us to start building the ground up pro-democracy side in numbers that will wake up these senators, wake up these corporations. And I think, you know, win at the ballot box in 2022, knowing what they're going to try to do. And that's the thing, gang, is that all of you out there can do this. You're all force multipliers, right? You know, Two people, three people, five people. Joe's built more of these than anybody probably in recent history. This is doable. It's hard, but it's invaluable work that can and should be done right away. And I know that I speak for Joe here when I say certainly we're committed to doing this day in and day out, not only through November of this year, but also November of 2024, because the stakes are too high, gang. 
and the opportunities are too great. We got a lot of stuff left to do as a nation, and we don't want to leave that stuff aside because if these guys take over next year, like nothing will get done. Nothing will get done. The issues we have to contend with will go by the wayside. So if there's a policy thing that you love and you're totally interested in, I understand that. But think about it in this context. The thing that you love and you're really passionate about doesn't happen without democracy. That's the bottom line. This race will be about democracy first, second, third, and always. So, Bart, I want to thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Everybody, it is the January and February edition of The Atlantic. Must read. It is long, but every word is worth it. Joe, I want to thank you again, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. Also, be sure to check out our growing LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. And Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Monday at noon Eastern. Plus, we'd love you to check out our newest show, The Game We're In, with Maya May and Trigby Olson, which airs Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.